Today we're in Nehemiah chapter two. And uh, <laughs> we've been talking about uh, Nehemiah because we've been talking about leadership and we've been talking about that leadership really matters in your life, that God wants to develop you and grow you as a leader in your own life, in your community, in this city, in the world that you live in, leadership really does matter. And so we've been talking about this book called Nehemiah because it's about a guy named Nehemiah who was an amazing leader. And it's a lot about Nehemiah, but it's also a lot about what the Lord does with his people. And so if you remember, we started with that, we start as leaders by developing a spiritual life that we understand that we have this horizontal life, but we also are those that are investing into the trellis of building a life with the Lord. We've talked about the power of prayer, answer dance, and the dynamite of prayer. Then we talked about discovering God's will for our lives. And when passion, gifts, and God opens the door come together, then we can step back and realize maybe God is showing us what he desires for us. And if we are Christ followers, every one of us has a will that God has for us, a general will, but also a very specific will. And everything I'm about to talk about today, I want you to hear it in the context of this. This is John chapter 17, verse three. This is Jesus. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's it. Right there in a nutshell is everything that the Lord is bringing into our lives is that we would know him. Like we would be intimate with him. And what's crazy, if, if you don't know Christ, it's going to be hard to understand. If you know Christ, but your journey with him has really struggled, it'll be hard to understand. But when Christ comes in, he transforms everything. And he invites us into an intimacy that makes us fully alive. And when we are fully alive and we're walking in our spiritual life, our prayer life, and God's will for our lives, it becomes this dynamic force of God bringing change in us, but also God bringing change through us. So here are the, what we're going to talk about today is how do I walk in God's will? And we're going to talk about the three R's. The three R's in Nehemiah chapter two of how to walk in God's will. So Lauren, would you come and read this? Is a, this is a tuck family service, like they're just everywhere. Wow. <clears throat> Can you read with that beautiful shirt looking at you? It's hard. I'm going to try. <laughs> hey, remind me what verse I'm going through. 18? Yeah, let's go 18. verses 11 through 18. Okay. All right, this is Nehemiah 2. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. 
So Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us wisdom and speak to us, Holy Spirit, for we understand that your truth is revealed, deep, profound truth for us is revealed, it's not discovered, so come and reveal. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Nehemiah, if you remember the story, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, had been ransacked uh, by the Babylonians years before, and they were slowly coming back into Jerusalem to repopulate and to rebuild the city. And the city was in disrepair. Uh, the walls were all torn down. The gates were all burned to the ground, which meant they really had no protection, that people didn't want to live in the city because it wasn't safe for them. Nehemiah was heartbroken and actually went to the king, and King Archaxerxes said, I'm going to give you permission to go back. I'm going to give you resources to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so in chapter two, we see that Nehemiah actually goes back and he surveys the wall and begins to do this work. So what's in this text that would help us as Nehemiah is walking through God's will for his life, how does it help us? Well, let's start with the very first verse in verse 11. It says, I went to Jerusalem. The very first part of living out God's will for our lives is ready, set, go. Go. I know that sounds so just simple, doesn't it? It sounds so just basic. When we lived in Virginia, there was a place called Crabtree Falls that we would hike up to and um, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it was this beautiful place where you could see the waterfalls, and there was a pond, and there was a tree growing out over the pond at the bottom of the waterfalls with a big rope swing on it. And so we all knew, we'd been hiking all day, we get up there, we know we're gonna, we're gonna grab that rope swing and we're gonna swing into that pool. The problem is, is that water was so cold, like literally so cold. Have you ever jumped in water so cold that you didn't know if you could breathe? Have you never done that? It's painful. It's like, a, it literally is painful. And I'm, I swear to you, every time we would go, somebody, we'd have to go, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first? And we'd be negotiating because we all wanted to get in. We'd stick our toe in and go, oh, it's colder than I remember it. And finally, somebody would say, I'll go. And they swing out and they wouldn't let go. <laughs> they'd swing back, swing out, ah, and they'd swing back. In fact, it got so bad that literally we had to go, okay. When we say go, you're going to let go. As they swing out, we're going, ready, set, go. And they still swing back to the shore. Because that's what's crazy about us as Christians is I can tell you all day long God has a will for your life and you look at me your entire life and say, I'll never go. In fact, I would tell you that most people in the church never go. Most of them have this idea and they love the idea of having purpose. They love the idea of having gifts. They love the idea of God having a design that he planned before the creation of the world for you to specifically walk in. But when it comes to actually firing up the engines and going, no thank you. Why? Because it's scary. It's risky. There's no certainty. And those are three things that none of us invite into our lives. We don't want that. So have you ever been to Disney? Have some of you been to Disney? There's Disney Safari. Have any of you been to Disney Safari? 
and you can go through parts like Little Africa. You know, you're going through safari, and there's wild animals there, and you're in a little cart, and you're seeing hippos and crocs and all that kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, I want a Disney life so bad. I do. Because two years ago, when I went to Uganda to visit my daughter, and we hooked up with a buddy of mine, Tito, who who trains pastors to go into southern Sudan to start churches, who one of his good friends uh, just lost his life planning a church in southern Sudan. It's a dangerous place. We said to Tito, take us to the camps where you train these pastors. So we spent all day traveling with him to the border of Sudan to meet these pastors that are being trained to go into a war zone to preach the gospel. And we had to cross the Nile River And like, we're waiting and this boat comes across. It's a ferry. It's the exact ferry you've seen in all the newsreels. Ferry goes down on the Nile River and everybody's lost. That's exactly what it looked like. They had revived it from the river and stuck it right on the bank and said, please get on, you know? And we weren't just getting on. It was like hundreds of people were getting on. Like the boat, you could feel it just kind of like with more, you're gonna put more, and then they put trucks on it, like 18 wheelers. And I turned to my daughter and I go, we're gonna sit right there. And she says, why? And she goes, because that's where the rack of life rafts are. All the, like, all, the raft, all the life preservers are right here. And when we sat down, I'm not kidding you. I said, okay, I want you to listen to me very carefully because we're gonna sink. I need you to get that in your mind that this boat is not going to make it to the other side. When we're leaving the bank, I said, look over there and what do you see? Hippos in the water. This was not Disney. They lived there. We saw crocodiles. I'm not joking. It's not like, oh, come on. No, they're everywhere in the Nile River. I swear to you. And I'm looking at her and I'm going, here's what I need you to do. Please promise me you'll do this when this boat sinks because it's going to sink. I'm going to throw that life jacket on you and I want you to swim as hard as you can. Don't try to save anybody. Don't try to be a hero. Don't rescue anybody. Just go to where we just came out of and pray to God a crocodile doesn't eat you. (laughs) I swear to you that really happened. That is scary. We made it there. We made it back. I don't want to do that again. Well, maybe a little bit. So if something's scary, if, if I can't go ready, set, go, it's ready, set, stop. Some of the things that get in our way is that we, we get stuck by overthinking it. It's paralysis by analysis. We're waiting for the right moment. We're trying to get all our ducks in a row because we have forgotten the fact that this is God's call on my life to display God's work through my life. And I start thinking, this is God's call in my life, and God's going to step back and go, oh, hey, angels, come here and watch this. I hope that works out. No, it is God's hand in our lives. So he's going to call you into things that are so far over your head. Why? Because he wants to display his glory through you, not your glory to the world. He wants to display your dependency upon him and the work of his Holy Spirit to do things that at the end of your life, when people ask you, explain it to me, and you go, you know what? It's all God's work. I swear to you, a thousand things could have happened to destroy this, and it just came together because God was working. Glory to the Father. If I don't understand that, then I'm going to overthink everything. Another thing that we tend to do is we, we get hysterical about historical 
And what I mean is, is that we look at what God's calling us to, but all we're looking at is what's happened in the past. And so we're saying things like, that can't happen. People have tried that before. So Nehemiah, when he traveled to Jerusalem, listen to this history. 90 years before Nehemiah traveled to Jerusalem, uh, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the walls. These walls have been destroyed for 90 years. When Ezra came back, the prophet Ezra came back, you can read, that's the book right before Nehemiah. He came back to rebuild the temple, which he did, and they started to rebuild the wall. And if you read in chapter four of Ezra, the governors of the trans-Euphrates area sent a letter to Arxaxerxes. This is the very king that sent Nehemiah. They sent a letter to Arxaxerxes and said, are you crazy? Are you letting this city get rebuilt? Do you know what a rebellious city this is? What problems they're gonna create for you? And he did some research and sent a letter. You can read the exact letter in chapter four of Ezra where he said, you're right, I'm crazy, shut it down. 13 years before Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, the very king that sent him shut it all down. Can you imagine Nehemiah walking into Jerusalem? We don't know if he knew anybody there. We don't know if anybody knew him there. We don't know if he had any idea what he was stepping into except for this. He was stepping into a community of people that were saying, we tried that before. Been there, done that, doesn't work. There are a thousand reasons not to go. But here's something that helps us. See, we think we have legitimate excuses not to, not to go. But in reality, what we have is a bunch of fear. And if I don't understand it's fear I'm dealing with, then I'm gonna ask all the wrong questions hoping that I get the right answer. But if we have the courage just to say, I'm just afraid. The odds are against me, historically is against me. I don't know if I can do this, it's too much for me. I'm just afraid. Now we can step into what we're really dealing with, which is fear, which is a great emotion because fear tells me I'm in over my head and fear challenges me to think differently about what I do. What do I mean? Do you know how scary it is to get up here in front of you every Sunday and preach? Do you think that I'm ever afraid to come up here? Deal with it every Sunday. Why? Because every one of you are going to leave today with an opinion about this place. Every one of you are going to leave with an opinion about what I said. And I'm no fool. Every one of you are going to leave with an opinion about me. What if I say something stupid? What if you don't like the shirt that I gave to Chad? That's impossible, by the way, because that's an amazing shirt. What if you're offended by what I... Like, do you know how, how arrogant it is to stand up here and say, I speak on behalf of the Lord? That is just, it makes me shake in my boots. But I know that I'm afraid. And here's what I do with it. I run to a greater fear. Do you know what I have more fear of? Not telling you what I got to say today. What I have a greater fear is that you wouldn't understand that God has a plan for your life. What I have more fear of is that you would forsake the very call for the reason that God made you and you would live a lesser life than what God has called you to live. That's the greater fear. And so what do I do? I step into that and go, okay, Lord, here we go. 
Help me to love them more than I love not being afraid. But now I know what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with fear. So fear can keep us from going ready, set, go. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul talking to his son in the faith, who's a pastor of a small church. And he says this to his little brother. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gifts of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Stir them up, brother. Why? Because there's passion there. For what? God's going to open the door. And when he does, listen to what he says. When God opens that door, for God has not given you a spirit of fear. Timothy, Timmy, come on. He's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Ready, set, go. The second R, look at verse 12. I had set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. If you'll turn around and look at that picture in the back, all the paintings in the back are ancient paintings of the book of Nehemiah, by the way. You see the one where he's surveying the wall on the horse? That's this passage. One on the left. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal gate, well, and the dung gate. And it was called the dung gate because that's where they took all the dung. Uh, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had broken down and its gauge would have been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, which is in the New Testament, Solomon's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the walls. And finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. What is he doing? He's out at night. He is examining the wall. Nobody knows that he's out there because he's got to do something. He's got to be ruthless. Ruthless about what? A ruthless examination of how big the challenge is that he's about to undertake. Some of the wall had been torn down for 90 years, some at 13. Have you ever put something in your yard for 13 years and just left it alone? Like, remember where you were 13 years ago. Can you remember that? What is that, 2008? Where were you 13 years ago? If you left something untouched for 13 years, imagine the shape it's in, much less 90. So he had to do a ruthless evaluation, and a ruthless evaluation always creates a plan. And that plan for us always starts with us. Or do you have the courage to do a ruthless evaluation of you? Are you ready for this adventure that God's about to take you on? You know, we talk a lot here at Midtown about four parts maturity because leaders are great leaders because they're mature leaders. And maturity here at Midtown is not just spiritual maturity. We love that. We love that you're walking closely with the Lord, but it's also emotional maturity. We often say, if you're not emotionally mature, but you claim to be spiritually mature, it probably just means you're spiritually abusive, you know? But we also talk about relationship maturity. That if I don't love people well in my life, I'm probably not emotionally mature or spiritually mature. And we also talk about social maturity, that we grow up to realize that we have a place in this city. This is our time. So when we take, a, when we take pause and we take a ruthless evaluation and assessment of where you are, where are you spiritually? Spiritually. 
Do you know Jesus? If you say, I don't think I do, that's a great place to start. If you say, yes, I do know Jesus, does your entire life flow out of knowing Jesus? Has eternal life begun in you already to where your life that you live on the outside is a reflective of the life that you're living on the inside to where Christ gives you power and strength to do everything that you're doing in your community? Is your dwelling with him empowering your dwelling with others? And if you're like, I don't know what that means, take a ruthless evaluation of that. Think about it. Can you imagine being married and never talking to the person that you're married to or never doing life with them? Well, some of you are like, yes, I can imagine that. <laughs> Does his grace make you hungry for him? Do you seek to be where he is? Does worship feed something deep inside of you? Do you find his word the place where you find truth and strength and wisdom? Where are you spiritually? Emotionally? How you doing? Are you aware that you have emotions? Do you consider your emotions good and gifts from the Lord? Are your emotions uh, giving you information about what's going on inside of you but not taking control of what you choose to do with them? Relationally, how you doing? Do you love people well? Do you let people love you well? What does that look like? If I took a survey of the people in your life, would I say, hey, how well do they love you? Are they great encouragers? Like, do they listen well to you? Do they, do they show a lot of curiosity about how you're doing in your life? Even when you're angry with them, do, you, do they receive that with thankfulness and they become curious about what they had done that made you angry or why you're responding in that way? How about socially? Is there a place in this city you go, it's different because I'm a part of that? Is there something happening in this city that you care so much about that you actually pray about it? Whether it's the farmer's market out here and we're bringing sustainable food into the inner city, or maybe you care for folks that are involved in human trafficking, or maybe you want affordable housing for this city, or whether or not you're involved in the immigrant issue, or whether you're bringing warm coats to people that don't have warm coats in the winter. Where, where do you care about this city being better because you're a part of it? You know, when we stand before the kingdom of God, God says, did you give me water when I was thirsty? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you come and visit me in prison? When you've done it under the least of these, you've done it to me. What Christ was saying was, when we're following Jesus, we can't help but to be that way. And can you take a ruthless inventory and ask yourselves, am I that way? If you're not, maybe parts of the wall of your own life have crumbled and it's time to start doing some rebuilding. But we also have to assess the wall of your call. And let me just say a couple things here and I'll land the plane on the final R in just a second. A lot of people believe that planning and faith do not go hand in hand. Some people believe in the church community that if you follow the Holy Spirit, you never need to have a plan. And I just want to tell you, that's just not true. God made us fully human and being fully human, he gave us a brain and with a brain, he gave us the ability to make a plan. In fact, I love, I've never quoted, I'm about to do something for the very first time, I've never quoted an admiral, ever. But I loved this quote so much from Admiral John Richardson. He said, when it comes to the future, there are three kinds of people. Those who let it happen, those who make it happen, and those who wonder what happened. Can we actually, as an expression of our faith, actually make a plan? 
Well, here's the most amazing thing is that we've been transformed by Jesus. And now that we're in fellowship with Jesus, that doesn't freeze me up, it frees me up. And Proverbs chapter 24, verse three, it says, a wisdom, by wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Even in Hebrews 11 it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not seen. What does that look like? So some of you know Jonathan Nash. Jonathan Nash uh, is one of our pastors. He's preached here a few times. And Jonathan um, was a teacher for Teach for America uh, in one of the schools here in town. He was attending Midtown. And we were spending time together. And we started talking about what is God's will for his life. And as he began to pray and began to examine his passions, he realized that God was calling him into ministry. God was calling him to be a pastor. And he knew that if I'm called to be a pastor, I got, I've got to quit my job and I got to go back to school. So we arranged for him to come on our staff so that he could quit his job and start going to seminary and studying wonderful things like Greek and Hebrew, you know, and church history. It's so exciting. As he finished his work and we said, okay, we know what your gifts are. We know what your passions are. What door is God opening? And I went to John, I said, I want you to pray about starting Midtown's work in the inner city. And he said, well, what does that mean? I said, I have no idea. I just want to see the gospel sing in our communities where we don't have anybody coming to church from there. Would you pray about what that would look like? Let me tell you what he did. Jonathan has five kids. Y'all know that? That's a lot of kids. Y'all know that? That's a lot of kids. John, John and his wife moved into the Napier community. He moved in. Like, this is not like a place, you know, that you would say, hey, let's go for a long walk. It's a safe, kind place. It's a dangerous place. Him and his wife moved in with this plan. Here, we're going to take a ruthless assessment of what needs to be done in this community to bring the gospel here. So I asked Jonathan, I said, would you explain it to me? Here are his words, not mine. I'd been in the neighborhood probably six months with my family. The whole experience was one of surveying where the Lord had put me. What tools and barriers were in front of me so that I could begin to do what I felt called to do. It was all relationship building. Finding the right people to know, understanding the cultural and social complexities of this community that's so different than anything or anywhere I've ever lived. And maybe most importantly, it was time to learn and unlearn things in my heart. One interaction early on really underlined the serious need for clear eyes for the walls God had called us to and a pretty ruthless self-assessment of my own heart. This is what happened. He said the de facto official or unofficial community leader at that time was this woman who ran the local metro center. And she was a fierce advocate and protector of the community. And no one did much of anything in this community without her approval or her engagement or her work with it. And so it was probably our second or third interaction and she asked me what I did and I told her I was a pastor. And she looked at me and said, you're a man, you're white, and you work for a church. Where I come from, 
three strikes and you're out. All those working against him. And he says, that was the beginning. And I realized the first wall was to build a relationship with this woman, which he did and they've become best of friends. You see what he did is he walked into God's call. It was scary. He said, let's go. Then he took a ruthless assessment and realized this is the work that we must do. And then finally, look at verse 17. Then I saw them and you see the trouble. Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah. You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and will no longer be in disgrace. And I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. The, the last R is crew. I know, I couldn't come up with another R, all right? But R's in it. Give me a break, all right? I'm a scared man, all right? You gotta go. You gotta be ruthless when it comes to the evaluation of yourself and the call that God has placed in your life and you need a crew. Just basic and simple, you can't do it alone. God never intended you to do it alone. And here's what I gotta say to you. By God's grace and through the power of prayer, you gotta build your crew. If you're sitting around waiting for your crew to come to you, it ain't gonna happen. You have to be intentional about building your crew. And I mean, you've got to be relentless because if your call doesn't matter to you, if God's will for your life doesn't matter to you, if it's not so serious that you're not gonna break a sweat for it and ask other people into your story, then you may need to go back and take another ruthless examination of your own heart. So you really need three people in your life. You need a mentor, you need a Mr. Miyagi, you know? You need somebody that literally can look at you and be very intentional about their investment in you. You need to pray for that person. You need somebody who's gonna be intentional. They're gonna be relational. You don't want a bully in your life. You don't want some sergeant who's gonna demand you to do something that they won't do. You want somebody who's relational and you want somebody that's gonna be able to give you something that you can reproduce. Those three things, you want a mentor that's intentional, that's relational, but also somebody who's, who can give you reproducible stuff. You don't want to follow a mentor that's like the magic guy that nobody can do what he does. Like you want somebody who's going to invest and give to you what's been given to him. And if you don't know who that person is in your life, when it comes to God's will for your life, you start praying for him. Praying for him, power of prayer, right? The second thing you need is you need brothers and sisters. You need people in the trenches with you that are just going to lock arms, that are in the same place you are in the journey, but you're just sweating with. You're just laughing with, you're crying with, you're loving with, you're going on trips with them. People that are going to encourage you. Why? Because <laughs> you can't do this alone. And then finally, and this may be the most important one, you got to find somebody that you can give what's being given to you. Why? <laughs> John Maxwell said, you never really know something until you teach it to somebody else. I am telling you, that in God's economy, there is something powerful that I can't explain to you fully when we get to heaven, Jesus will. But when you give something that's been given to you to somebody else, you get it back a hundredfold. You understand it more than you ever did when you just had it to yourself. 
And if you're not practicing the mentor that's pouring into you and the person that doesn't know as much as you do pouring into them, then you're missing a part of the chain of what God says, you need a crew. And that's what Nehemiah said. I can't build this wall together because he understood something. As people that are of Jesus, we are not cul-de-sacs. You understand that? We're not the place where you go in, but you can't get out. We are flowing rivers. We are rivers of God's grace, God's love. That's why scripture says we love because he loved us. He fills me up with his love and then I pour it out. I get as much this way as I get this way. We forgive, why? Because he's forgiven us. That's the only way I do it because I come back to the, the source, the fountainhead of all that I need. The scripture even says that you give, why? Because so much has been given to you. And if you're lousy at giving, it's because you're lousy at understanding what's been given to you. You're not broke here, you're broke here. And if you get this fixed, then this will be out of control. Because if you understand that everything you have is from the high king of heaven, and he holds you in his hands, and he says, I dare you to trust me. Exercise faith now. Come on into the call. Let's go. Come on, let's take a ruthless examination of what you need because I will give you everything you need for life and godliness. Call upon my name. And then if you will start to pray that I will gather serious, loving, kind people around you, watch what I do. It matters. You know why it matters? Because you matter. We need you to know your call. We need you to walk in your call. And pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that you would help us to know um, what should be forgotten from this time, what should be remembered, what should be given, what should be taken away. Lord, I think there are maybe a handful of people in this room that may not know what it feels like when the Holy Spirit is moving. The uneasiness, maybe even the anger, the justification, the doubts that are flying all around our heads. I can never do that. I just pray, Father, that as your spirit moves right now to stir even just that one person in this room that goes, I know you're calling my life. That Lord, you give them courage to let go of that rope, to go splashing into that pool at the bottom of the waterfall and experience a life that is supernatural. A life that forces them to deal with their fear. A life that's not afraid of ruthless examinations because they expose our need and our need brings us to you. And a community, a crew around us, brothers and sisters that love us deeply. We put that in your hands now, Father. Come, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.